0: We're breaking the fourth wall here in unprecedented ways at the end of the day it is about the work and i couldn't be more proud of the incredible work that you and everyone on the team is doing i know if you can dish it you gotta be able to take it and god knows i dish it
1: welcome to the powers that be daily puck's podcast focused on the intersection of wall street washington silicon valley and hollywood and the players who run it all i'm peter hamby It's Monday, December 5th. Today, on Media Monday, John Kelly and I talk about the demise of The Recount, the newsroom launched in 2019 by John Heileman and John Battelle, promising to reinvent and reshape digital video and coverage of politics. But they might have been a little too late to the game. And John and I discussed the New Yorker profile that just dropped about Puck. Go read it if you haven't. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. happy monday everybody it's media monday which means i'm joined by john kelly who along with the rest of us at puck was profiled by the new yorker magazine last week uh john i will talk to you about that in the b block but i hope you're feeling good about it
0: it was exciting to see all the work and the accomplishments that the team has had in the last like 15 months we're we're all proud of what we've done and and proud of each other and um and i love you peter (laughs) (laughs) I love you too, I'm so (laughs) proud of you. (laughs) Um,
1: We'll get to that, I don't wanna be too navel-gazing. There was an interesting story that caught my eye last week and I immediately texted you about it, that we should talk about on the pod, which is The Recount, which is a sort of video-focused political news site that was started in 2019 by John Heilman and John Battelle, two veteran journalists. They basically said they are gonna be winding down their operations after like three years or so last week. This is how The Recount pitched themselves when they started back in 2019. TV news is broken, too much blather, bad faith, and BS. At The Recount, we're reinventing video journalism for the platforms reshaping the news, streaming and social media. They've succeeded in some places. They have almost half a million followers on TikTok, for example, but didn't really catch on. And my most proximate experience with them was just seeing what they put out, like the videos they put out on Twitter. Uh, And it's just, you know, 20-second clips of like Mitch McConnell in the Senate gallery, giving a press conference, 22nd Don Lemon rant on CNN, 22nd Matt Gates embarrassed video, you know, it's just sort of like doing what a lot of other people do, quite frankly. And so in my eye, that that sort of suggested they weren't really distinguishing themselves. But why why do you think they didn't make it through, John?
0: Well, you point out they, they raised capital um, and started the business in 2019. And I think they raised 30 30- million, $34 million overall. This was a lot of smart money. Ron Conway's uh SV Angel was in this. Uh Fred Wilson's Union Square Ventures was in this. Uh Robert Wolf, um, who I think people know as uh, Obama's banker. He was the 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 only man on Wall Street who supported Obama. I mean or the you know the most public one after um 2008 at UBS um great guy, a real uh, visionary in some ways. I think Heilman saw what was happening most acutely because he was a citizen of the green room, I mean, maybe the king of the green room and recognize that these like very hegemonic forces in our culture, like Morning Joe, one day would go away. One day people will not sit through five hours of Joe Scarborough every morning. Maybe not when Joe Scarborough still in his 60s, but but one day it'll be different, right? I think a lot of people were coming up with ideas for what the post-cable future was going to look like. And I, I was actually a very early recount subscriber. I thought the idea was ambitious and cool. Don't forget, Quibi was starting around this time too. So there were a number of people who saw blood in the water and predicted that a new behavior was going to happen. I think that a couple of things dawned on them, and and that's where reality set in. One is video production is enormously expensive, as you know better than I. It is in many ways cheaper than broadcast television, but in other ways, um, there's still a, a large margin to account for. And the other is that they were trying to be the product and the brand and the platform. And I think that is where the rubber kind of hit the road here as things like Instagram video and, and TikTok entered the picture. It became clear that distributed video, particularly in a, in a world where YouTube still exists, was going to be so hard. And you're back into um, an advertising business and it's a lower margin advertising business than exists on on broadcast. So I think there's no doubt that they pushed the industry further than it would have gotten on its own. And that it it forced the hand of a lot of these um, large media companies to begin to figure out how to distribute video. But that inevitably, this is not just a scale game. It's a scale to the power of scale sort of game. And, uh, you know, we live in a world now, Peter, where like, Late night shows basically exist as distributors on YouTube. The recount would have never been big enough to compete in, in that world, or at least it, it would have acquired so much capital. And And John and John are pros. They've been very successful in the past. They recognize that they wanted to wind this down responsibly. And I'm sure that they will be able to, to make some money for a number of the assets that they have, like social channels and video production, and that it'll be a, a, a smart, responsible wind down. Because as we know, in media, Not everything works and that's okay. Again,
1: they launched this in 2019 and the issue is they started too late. This sort of digital video, distributed video thing really began kind of around like 2013, 2014, you know, I went to Snapchat and basically started building this stuff in 2015, four years before. You know, I remember when Battelle and Heilman launched this, Battelle gave a quote. I just dug it up. We started developing it because we were hungry for something we couldn't find in the current media landscape a place featuring political news and analysis that's easy to access and watch on the go, that's concise, intelligent, entertaining, and that doesn't waste your time or bury you in bullshit or bad faith. The first half of that, like, is just wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. of course you could find <laughs> that stuff in the current anywhere, media landscape. Anywhere. You know, sure. my, like, there's too much. Yeah, event. like Snapchat, Snapchat had tons of. Political shows, uh, many of them smart, that existed four years before John Battelle gave this quote. And the reason it gave me Quibby vibes is like, you know, Katzenberg sort of talked a big game in the same way. Like, we're doing something no one else is doing. And if you were either under the age of 40 or your first screen every day was your cell phone, you already knew that this stuff existed on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. A lot of it was driven by, you know, amateur creators who weren't journalists. But, you know, a lot of organizations out there were already creating, like, compelling bite-sized video. And the world wasn't asking for this. They have, like, 500,000 followers-ish on TikTok, which is great. It's just, like, if they had started investing in that kind of, like, creator-driven, short, distributed stuff, like, four or five years earlier, like, I feel like they might have been able to, like, make it through a little bit. They have no presence on Snapchat. They have about 100,000 followers. Instagram, which isn't that much. Um, and so, you know, and then they also have like podcasts, etc. I've They tried to pilot shows. I mean, my friend Sasha Eisenberg sat down for a pilot with them like a few years ago. And it just, it's just competing against so much. And there was so much just like more compelling stuff that was out there. And then at the end of the day, they became part of that volume rather than cutting through it. Because you just saw like, or at least in my experience, rather, you saw a lot of just sort of like clips and sound bites that were put out on Twitter. Again, I think the TikTok stuff is more interesting. That should have been the goal from
0: the get go. Maybe it was. I don't know. I wasn't paying that close attention to it, but it just it just reminded me of Quibi. You just made a very good point in your comparison there, and and my wrist is slapped. I think I think you're right that normally when um, when the hegemons of an industry, people like Jeffrey Katzenberg or Halvin Battelle, figure out that a change is afoot, it, it does probably mean, as you point out, that the change was afoot three or four years earlier, and it's just only kind of risen to the the C suite. Um, you know, phone-bearing millennials weren't just born in 2019 looking for episodic mobile TV or or cable news um the interesting like final final takeaway of this for me is just simply how hard ad supported media is because that essentially is what this is and also and i think you'd agree with this there is so much political media and i think that um there is a familiar talking point that we hear a lot you and i hear it i think in particular a lot that we just want a calmer more centrist more adult conversation. Actually, at some level, that's what The Recount tried to do before the Tide. It was nonpartisan. It was meant to have a sort of smart brevity quality that Axios had on video. But when you're competing with everyone, uh, what are you? Neil King, who I love that dude. I haven't talked to him in years, but he used to be a political reporter at the
1: Wall Street Journal. And he left and he's enjoying semi-retired journalist life. He tweeted after Semaphore launched, Semaphore was doing some promoted marketing tweets. And one of them said, sign up today for semaphore principles coming to your inbox this fall. Our team of reporters will break down what's really happening in D.C. So you're always in the know. And then Neil King retweeted this and said, still astonished that even with the squadrons of reporters at The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, <laughs> NPR, Politico, Axios, Punchbowl, and countless cable and TV networks, we still don't know what's really happening in D.C. And look, part of, that's part of our promise at Puck too, yeah. right? We want to tell you what's really <laughs> happening. But it's like, If you're launching, like, oh, like another political news site that's really going to cut through the blather, it's just really hard. And a lot of political journalism generally is just blather. Like, let's not all pretend. (laughs) It's all like, high-minded David Halberstam
0: shit. Oh, totally. Which was plenty of blather in that too, by the way. (laughs) It's true. Those books are pretty long. (laughs) Even though he is our namesake and God love the late man. But the journalists make a lot of media for journalists. And I think that's where that refrain comes up a lot is that there are biases, as I guess as there are in in any profession. But you know what though? I'm a um, proponent of the way this whole recount story has been handled. Certainly there is like a lot of schadenfreude, as you'd expect. They raised a lot of money. These are two white guys who'd had big careers. But I think that this is certainly on trend with what we're seeing elsewhere in media, especially in ad-supported media. And not everything works in the media, part of the media that, um, the sort of media on media games. Some companies go to extraordinary lengths to prevent admitting failure. And I actually think that's often overrated. I, I give these guys credit for saying like, hey, wasn't working. We're gonna throw in the towel here and uh, move on to other things because uh, I think they're serial entrepreneurs.
1: John, we'll be right back. Uh, and I wanna ask you about an article that was written about us, but also about you. Welcome back, everyone. Um, last week, The New Yorker, which is not at all a publication for Elites, uh, wrote an article uh, <laughs> about how Puck is a publication for Elites. <laughs> I thought it was great. You know, I think there were a few things that jumped out at me, like a little, a little off-target observations. One of them calling Puck, this is the headline, the email newsletter for the Mogul set. Sure, we're we're creating stuff for the Mogul set. I like that. But, like, not understanding, hey, it's not just about email newsletters here. Like, we're actually, like, creating some new formats. You know, we're experimenting with formats like this, uh, et cetera. So, like, there's some business things that I feel like the author missed. But, you know, we got a very handsome photo of you with the Puck logo, like, pointing down to your head. (laughs) Like a lightning rod. Yeah, a little lightning rod. I learned a lot about you, too. I mean, we know each other well. Um, I didn't know. I was texting with my dad about this. Bill Hamby, Puck's number one fan and subscriber. I didn't know you were such a New York City elite, uh, which makes me happy that we're pals because, (laughs) you know, I grew up in the Virginia suburbs and you grew up in the West Village. But here we are and we see the world in a lot of the same ways, thanks to the fact that I guess our parents were journalists. Um, But
0: I want your reviews of this. I'm curious what you think. Oh, yeah. We're we're breaking the fourth wall here in unprecedented ways. Um, We'll sort of See, the obvious here is a privilege to be profiled. We obviously have an enormous respect for the New Yorker. I thought Claire was a really nice, smart person. I I like getting to know her, you know, the, Funny thing about going through a process like this is you talk to somebody many times and you actually sort of develop your own sort of shorthand with them that, that isn't really manifested in the work itself, but I really enjoyed it. I think she's really talented. And I don't want to edit a published piece. I feel that is certainly the the inclination of an editor. I think that, of course, if it were up to me, we talk about Puck all day, all, you know, off this program, and I'm enormously you know, proud of everyone. I, I wish that, obviously, she'd spent more time talking about you and, and this show. And it'd be great if, if there was more room to talk about the extraordinary work Matt's done. Certainly. She mentioned some of it, but I could go on for days about uh, how invaluable his contributions have been and just what a, an unbelievable generational talent he is. And I could say this, but any of, a number of our colleagues too, and uh, incredible management team too, certainly it was more about writers than it was about business operators. Um, but what makes Puck so interesting to me and, and part of why I love it so much is that I, I really do feel like the business model underneath what we're doing here is something that I really do believe is going to change our industry. I think journalists should be treated as value creators. That means treating them and offering them ownership and entities and, and incentivizing them and motivating them. You know, I know that when we first talked about Puck in a serious way, I remember that day very, very clearly. I was chasing one of my kids around the park and, and you were just the best. You were so like enthusiastic and supportive immediately and, and all in. It was just clear that we wanted to build a great company. We'd, we'd like to do, to do well in this, obviously. But we want to shake things up for the people that come after us, too, and to make it no longer outrageous or insane to be an owner in a journalistic enterprise. And I think that we're normalizing that in the best possible way. And, and it's powerful. Like, I think that's something that's truly really powerful. And sometimes that gets lost underneath the coverage of Puck, which is fine to me because at the end of the day, it is about the work. And I couldn't be more proud of the incredible work that you and everyone on the team is doing. I know if you can dish it, you got to be able to take it. And God knows I did it, so I can certainly take it. And it was fun for me to see some of my like verbal tics that get caught up that were mentioned. And I, I think actually Claire made fun of the business jargon that i probably sprinkle into prose. <laughs> charge. I think it's, it's my zeal for the business and what we're doing. But I, it was fun for me to also read at a 30,000-minute view about my relationship with Graydon, who obviously is like a very important guy in my life. I think he and I both probably found some of that a little bit amusing. But there's also no question to me that like there were certain things that I learned from him and the industry learned from him that we wouldn't be able to do this without. All in all, I thought it was great. It was flattering. Obviously, uh, when you when you submit to something like that, you know that you'll be criticized. That's the nature of the game. You, you don't want it to be, Pat. And um, I'm glad that Bill liked it. Did, did Tressa Hemby like it too? I haven't talked to her about it yet. We've mostly okay. been
1: talking about um, Christmas planning. Um, I see. A lot of
0: wedding stuff, I'm sure. I'm sure she's got her book. Yes, body on wedding them. stuff for sure.
1: Yeah, uh, Claire, really good journalist. I think this is right. She was a few years behind me at Georgetown, but we both wrote for the... That is correct. We both wrote for the hip alt-weekly, the Georgetown Voice, which is where the cool kids hung out, not the Hoya. Now it all comes together. I said this on the pod before. One of the first things you said to me about Puck, not one of the first, but one of the most important things was after the election, you were giving away all your insight for free on Twitter. And I think, Puck, if people start to like pay attention to the business as well as the actual content and the things we're covering, they'll understand that we're trying to find a way to make journalists understand that they are, and this is an icky word for a lot of ivory tower types, you know, sorry, David Redneck, like we are creators and we create content for the internet and we should be rewarded as such. And I think a lot of journalists, young and old in more traditional newsrooms are sort of like browbeaten into thinking like you serve the God of... CNN or the New York Times. And you do in a sense if you work there, but you also like eat what you kill (laughs) on the internet.
0: You know, it's funny in some ways we are still as an industry getting payback for giving this all away. Scott Galloway has talked extensively about being on the board of the New York Times company when Google was kind of reaching its, its apotheosis. And he would offer like very charged arguments in the boardroom about how they shouldn't just give their work away on the open web. And obviously it's a fed now, right? Like it seems ridiculous to talk about reversing that. But we are now getting of a certain age, Peter. I hate to do this to us, but it is true. We are, you know, we would be middle-aged NFL coaches at this point. And we remember how hard it was to um, get your hands on something. Like when we were kids, you know, you would only get a couple of newspapers and, and a couple of magazines. The only way to disseminate information was to buy something and have that like really immersive experience. And it's just hard not to think that we're headed back there in some way, shape or form somehow where you need to really know the brands you're me to get the information that you really want. Um, and that sounds absurd to people who are younger than us and who have not experienced that in the industry. But that's why people had such deep relationships with the brands that they read, that they love, because they had to intentionally go to get them, to pay for them, to read them. And that makes me very happy. That is the sort of like central magazine art that I think in our lifetime is, is being restored. And it will all be the uh, better for it. Speaking of that, I subscribe to The New Yorker.
1: So <laughs> I support Support that brand. All right, John. Thanks so much, man. Uh, We'll see you in the Slack this week.
0: All right. Talk to you later, buddy.
1: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.